Good morning again, church. All right, if you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Everyone worships. Everyone. The religious and the irreligious. The secular and the spiritual. Both worship. Everyone places ultimate value on something. Which in turn guides our thoughts informs our decision-making, and shapes our desires. The issue is not if we worship, but who, what, and how we worship. I'm ask you a rhetorical question to think over a minute. What do you think about when you hear the term worship? I think often what comes to mind and is right are many activities that we do. Maybe what we're doing this morning here as a church. And you would be right. What I want to challenge you to think about this morning is that before worship is ever an activity, worship is our identity. God created us this way. We don't just worship on Sunday. We worship our way through every day of life. We all attach our identity, our sense of well-being, purpose, and meaning to something. We're always serving something. We're always in pursuit of something. We're always worshipers. Now last week we began our DNA series intended to really help us focus on what we believe are the basics of our ministry. Really who we are and what we are trying to accomplish as a church. We began in Matthew 5 by unpacking our mission statement which states, We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. We noted three important clauses which comprise our mission statement. We said there is an aim, the glory of God. There's a means of accomplishing this aim, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we talked about there is a vehicle, the church, or our lives together. So we exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. We then looked at three really foundational beliefs we we addressed by way of application of last week's sermon, which undergird our mission statement. We said, number one, we believe the hope for San Diego and the nations is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We said, number two, we believe God's primary means of making His gospel known in the world is through the local church. And we said, belief number three, or conviction number three, is our task, or our mission as the hill is making disciples. Okay, and what I said last week, and we'll continue now, is that the next three weeks, this morning and the next two weeks, We want to really focus our attention on defining a disciple from the Gospel of John. If we're called to make disciples as the hill, then we should probably be in agreement as to what or who a disciple is. Worship, I want to say this morning, worship is foundational to discipleship. 
Maybe we could say, worship is the foundational question of a disciple. A disciple is someone who, we said, learns from Jesus to live like Jesus. Someone who conforms his or her life to Jesus. And when we trace the Gospel of John, we find three complementary perspectives on what it means to follow Jesus, patterned after Jesus himself. What we see, I think, is that a disciple is a worshiper, John chapter 4, a servant, John chapter 13, and a witness, John chapter 17. We're going to be focusing, obviously, on the first mark this morning. So at the Hill, we, we understand that Christianity, this is important, we understand Christianity to be defined not just by a relationship. It is that. We understand it to be defined by relationships. Relationship with God, with one another, and with the world. So this morning we're going to begin unpacking our first mark of a disciple, a devoted worshiper, which informs our relationship to God. A disciple is first and foremost a worshiper. Now, I want to give you a main idea this morning from John chapter 4, and hopefully I'm going to spend the next 30, 40-ish minutes unpacking it. And here it is. Worship is our full life response to who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. Worship is the full life response to who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. Now my sermon text this morning is really going to focus on uh, verses 16 down to verse 26. But to understand the context, I'm going to begin reading from verse 1 and read all the way down to um, verse uh, 26 here. So John chapter 4, verse 1, we read these words. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Father, guard our time now, please. Help us focus to hear. Lord, we all come with a thirst. And you are the only one who can satisfy. So Lord, this morning, let us be honest about our thirst and let us receive uh, the life-giving water of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Now Jesus really bends all the, all the social, all the religious, all the political conventions here of his day to encounter this outcast Samaritan woman, which really leads to this important discussion pertaining to worship. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They were viewed as traitors. Samaritans were said to be religious and ethnic, for lack of a better term, half-breeds who had intermixed with the Assyrians. So during this time, a rabbi would never teach a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, and especially one who was on her fifth husband. But the love of God in Christ cares nothing of such man-made boundaries. So the Samaritan woman comes to this water hole in the middle of the day thinking she will be alone. She wants to be alone. But Jesus confronts her. And Jesus treats her as no Jewish man ever had. He engages her with dignity and compassion. He asks her for water and proceeds to have a spiritual conversation with her about salvation and eternal life. At first she is, maybe we could say, apprehensive to go down this road until Jesus reveals to her He is no ordinary man. He knows things about her no ordinary man could. And this is where our sermon text really picks up here in verse 19. And I want to give you really my first point here from verses 19 to 23, and it's this. As it relates to a devoted worshiper. A devoted worshiper is a life lived in response to God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. A devoted worshiper is a, a life lived in response to God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. There. There seems to be a sudden, drastic change of subject in verse 19. It seems as though we may have even skipped a line in our Bible as we read. We go from discussing this woman's resume of husbands to a discussion regarding which mountain is the proper place to worship. Seems a bit odd. Let me read it to you again. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, 
I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now, maybe she switches the subject from her marital status to worship to detract from Jesus' question. To detract from the sin question she finds embarrassing. That's possible. But I I believe there's something more here. I I believe based upon Jesus' response to this woman and her knowledge of her past, she really does believe Him to be some sort of Jewish prophet. And no doubt she's convicted of her sin. So she wants to know about worship. So she poses not just a theological question, she poses the theological question, which defines the deep and long division between Jews and Samaritans concerning worship. The Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage based solely on the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected everything else. So they rejected God's instruction for Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem. They understood Mount Gerizim as the proper place of worship, not Jerusalem. And this had been and still was a contentious dividing issue among the Jews and Samaritans. So her question, I believe, is an honest one. But yet, as Jesus makes clear, it's a wrong one. Her question regarding worship deals with location. Where should proper worship take place? And Jesus, as he always does, so graciously but so directly, cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Worship is not a question of where. Worship is first and and foremost a question of who. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, the question of the place of worship is irrelevant. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He makes clear the object of her worship, the Samaritan worship, is unknown as well. By rejecting the Old Testament, the Samaritans stood outside of the stream of God's revealing of the Messiah. That He would come from the Jews. Look at verse 23 though. But the hour is coming and is now here. when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now this phrase, the hour is coming. The time is near. It's a specific reference throughout John's gospel. He uses it often. It's a specific reference to the cross, to the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. So so what exactly is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying there is an event about to take place. It's already began to take place. Namely, his life His death for sin, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven, which will end the argument surrounding geography and worship. True worship is dependent upon an event and a person, namely Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. Let me say this to you directly. There is no greater question when addressing the issue of worship than who? 
Proper worship begins by you knowing who you are worshiping. True worship only takes place when we worship God for who He is. And we know who God is by how He has revealed Himself in redemptive history. And what Jesus is alluding to in verse 21 is that this woman, to this woman, is that the climax of God's revelation, the means of true worship, is bound up in His person and His work in the gospel. Look, worship is ultimately a value question. What value, what worth you ascribe to Jesus? That's the worship question. Do you recognize the incomparable value of what Jesus has done for you upon the cross? The God who created this world by the breath of His power The God we began with in Psalm 24. The God who is in the heavens and does all that He pleases. That He has looked upon our helpless state and acted by His grace and for our salvation. Due to our sin, we are separated from the Father. We're unable to truly worship and enjoy Him. Jesus has come and died in our place. As the payment for our sin. Reconciling us to the Father. Restoring our relationship to Him and to one another. And then empowering us by the Holy Spirit to truly worship. What value and worth do you ascribe to Jesus? Worship is the response your heart ascribes ultimate value to. So the question we have to be honest about this morning and reflective about is, what is that for you? What do you ascribe ultimate value to? Is it comfort? Is it financial security? Is it success? Is it being liked and accepted? Is it gaining power? Is it a relationship? If I can just get married, if I could just get divorced, what do you value most? Because what you value most, you will live for. Say it this way. What you value most, you do live for. That is what informs your desires. That is what dominates your worship. Brothers and sisters, discipleship begins with worship. It begins with us valuing and treasuring Jesus above everything else. A devoted worshiper is a person whose life is lived in response to the immeasurable value and worth of Jesus Christ. That's a simple word, but it's an essential word for a Christian in discipleship and undering. It's response. A disciple is one whose life has been reoriented by the gospel. We live not trying to earn something from God. But we live in response, loving response 
to what God has done for us in Christ. Secondly, so a devoted worshiper is first a life lived in response to what God has done for us. Secondly, a devoted worshiper is a life which is spirit-led and word-centered. We see this in verses 23 and 24. I already read them. I can read them again. Jesus doesn't just leave worship, though, in the realm of the who, right? He also addresses the, the how. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and, the, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The Gospel of John has three must statements. You might want to write these down and it could be a good time for you to study and figure out how they hang together. John has three must statements in his Gospel. You must be born again. John 3.17 The Son of Man must be lifted up. John 3.14 And then here in verse 24, that those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. To be a true worshiper, we must respond correctly in the Spirit. The meaning of Spirit here hangs on verse 24, which states that God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. For God to be Spirit means that God is invisible and divine as opposed to human. He is life-giving and unknowable to man unless he chooses to reveal himself, which he has in the person of his Son. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And Jesus is the one who brings about the new birth as a work of the Holy Spirit by which we are made alive in Christ and brought into the realm of true worship. But true worship is not just in spirit, it's in spirit and truth. Truth means we are to worship what is true about God. Worshiping in truth occurs when we worship in accordance with what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. That's true worship. This is why the Word must be central in all that we do. Must be. This is why I... I have to preach the way that I preach. This is why we begin our service with a call to worship where we read the Scriptures. Without the truth of God's Word, we cannot know God rightly. And if we cannot know God rightly, we cannot worship Him accurately. It's been said that the greatest and most important thought you can entertain is what is God like? What is God like? What comes into our minds when we think of God is the foundational question. And as we all know, you go out on the street and talk to 20 people and ask that question, you'll get 20 differing, varying definitions or responses. So can we even know what's true? Yes. We have the truth of God's Word. The Bible is essential for true worship because by it, God has revealed Himself to us. So look, we, people love to speak of being spiritual and experiencing God these days. 
If you don't believe that, watch the next Golden Globe Awards or one of those. I mean, everyone will come up and talk about God. But if you listen closely, this is often done based upon or by way of one's own terms. People are quick today to design their own religion and God they can worship. And let's be honest. Even so-called Christians fall into this. I don't like that part of the Bible. That can't be true. There's no way that fits with where we are today. I don't like what it says about this or that. But when this takes place, the possibility of true worship is out the window. It's gone. You cannot be worshiping. I want you to hear this. This is important. You cannot be worshiping a living God at this point. To design a God that fits you and throw out what you don't like is to create something. I want to say someone, but I'm going to say something that can never disagree with you. That can never challenge you. That you can never be wrong towards. Isn't that what it means to be God? He's other than us. It is to create a cardboard cutout which if you want to know the truth, begins up looking more like us than the God of Christianity. You know, we often read the Old Testament, we often read ancient history and see the crafted images and idols and think, man, what? I mean, they were just, they just didn't know better. That's what we're told today, right? We're a modern society. That's why we don't do that. Let me be very clear with you. We have as many, if not more, idols today than ever in the past. They crafted images like themselves just like we do. We just might be a little modern and don't make it into a gold statue and bow down to it. But we look in the mirror and brush our teeth and allow ourselves to dictate how we're going to live our lives. We make ourselves our own God. Without the truth of God's word, no living, worshiping relationship is possible. If you're not willing to submit to the truth, of the scriptures, you've removed your ability to truly worship God. When we pick and choose the type of Jesus we want instead of allowing the Bible to inform us, our Jesus, as I said, can actually become a reflection of ourselves. And I want to challenge you to think Because if we're not careful, and I think we do this, we make Jesus into a middle-class American. His mission becomes, his sole focus is to help me pursue my personal lifestyle and execute my future plans for my family and my church and my whatever it is. He values what we value in the culture. When we come to the Scriptures, honestly, that's not the case. Our worship must be in spirit. And truth. Look, any Jesus who isn't Savior and Lord, yes, sacrificial lamb, but a sovereign ruling king is not the Jesus of the Bible. I hope you see how this relates to discipleship. Our relationship to God is to be characterized by worship. And we worship the Father by growing in our knowledge and devotion to Jesus. 
the person He has chosen to reveal Himself through, the Divine Son. And where do we find Jesus? We find Jesus in the Word, through the Spirit. If you want to grow in devotion and relationship with God, it won't happen apart from the Word. This is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Discipleship is bound up in Word and Spirit. Devoted worshiper must be Spirit-led and Word-centered. Thirdly, a devoted worshiper is a life fully submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This woman's final response, I know is rather intriguing considering Jesus' earlier statement that we worship what we know, you worship what we do not know. Now, while her uh, knowledge is definitely still lacking on many levels and is needing further development, she she does have enough knowledge to believe that the person who could definitively end this debate, answer this question, was still to come. He was the Messiah. Or as she says, the Christ, the anointed one. And in response to her statement, Jesus immediately seizes the opportunity to declare literally, I who speak to you am He. I am He. In John's Gospel, Jesus uses this I am statement as an important theme to disclose His true identity. We find him saying, stating, I am the bread of life, 635. I am the light of the world, 812. I am the door of the sheep, 107. I am the good shepherd, 1014. I am the resurrection of the life, 1125. He gives definitive, clear statements there. But in a few places, this one included, this phrase, it's used without any really strong accompanying description. But make no mistake, it's used simply as a clear declaration of who Jesus is. He's announcing his identity to this woman. Again, I I don't want to... We did this, for instance, we talked about... If someone believes, we hear it often, that the Bible is made up. The Bible, you'd never... A man-made book written by men. Why in the world would Jesus disclose his identity often to his disciples? John chapter 3, he's talking to, um, he, he's talking to uh, Nicodemus, religious leader. This man is the theologian. And he discloses from Nicodemus his true identity. But he, he makes very clear to the Samaritan woman on her fifth husband. Outcast woman, everyone looks by. She's going in the middle of the day to get water because no one will be there. Leave her alone. And he discloses the fullness of his person to her through this beautiful phrase of the I am. This declaration of who I am comes to us from the Exodus story. Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses at the burning bush and called him to lead his people out of slavery under Pharaoh. God instructed Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go and Moses responded, Who shall I tell Pharaoh your name is? Literally, who are you? And God answered with this declaration, Tell Pharaoh... I am who I am sent you. God reveals Himself as the self-existent one, the unchanging, inexhaustible origin behind all reality. He is the, the, the one whom all power and energy in the universe flows and the one whom all creation must conform itself to. 
This is what it means to be the I Am. The Sovereign Lord over the heavens and the earth. And it's this name to which Jesus takes upon Himself consistently throughout the Gospel of John. To the point in John, He, he really gives the Pharisees a head spin here. In John eight fifty six through 58 Jesus said to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, I am. They don't know what to do with that. Jesus takes upon Himself this personal, authoritative, all-defining name of God, the I Am. Woman, I am He. Worship demands our recognition that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, He is the Sovereign Lord of the universe. There's only one right response to a sovereign, good, loving Lord. We submit. We worship. We submit our lives to His loving, sovereign Lordship. Look, since worship is valuing and treasuring something over everything else, then worshiping Jesus, submitting our lives to Him, is simply declaring He's our greatest treasure. There's no area. We talk about Lordship. There's no area of your life which is not affected by Jesus. There should be no area of our lives not submitted to Jesus. To worship Jesus, submit every area of your life to His Lordship. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, chapter 1 and 2, I, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what it means to become a Christian. You've heard me say this before. Becoming a Christian. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear this. Becoming a Christian is a changing of lordship. Before you become a Christian, you are the Lord of your life. You make your own decisions based upon what you want and you desire. You are king. You are ruler. But to become a Christian is to accept Jesus as both Savior and Lord. You're no longer king. You're not your own ruler anymore. He is. You lay down your lordship lovingly to take up His. You worship Him. Here's a, here's a thought I want us to take a little deeper. Worship is always transformative. We have to see this as it relates to discipleship. Worship transforms. What you worship dictates and transforms your life. The Bible says we are to be transformed into the image of Christ. Worship is at the center of this. Harry Potter's first book and movie, there's an object called the mirror of Erised. It's really the word desire backwards. Harry comes upon this mirror and he looks in and amazingly Harry sees his parents. Now the reason this is so amazing is because his parents are dead. In fact, his parents died while he was an infant. He's, he's never met them. But in the mirror they look, love, touch, and talk to Harry. And he can't believe it. 
He's so excited, he runs to get his friend, Ron, who is sleeping, and he forces him to get up and says, Come, see for yourself. Thinking Ron's going to see his parents, Harry tells him to look in, but instead Ron looks in and says, Wow, I look great. Look at me. I'm a sports champion. I'm head of my school. Harry can't figure it out. He's like, what the heck's going on with this mirror? But then Harry's mentor comes and explains how the mirror shows the deepest and most desperate desire of one's heart. But then his mentor makes a very important statement concerning the transformative nature of worship, I believe. He says, we must get rid of this mirror because people waste away before it. They waste away glaring into it. What's he saying? He's saying that our desires, our wants, those things that we worship, they they control us. Whatever controls you is your Lord. Whatever controls your life is your Lord. The person who lives for money is controlled by money. The person who lives for acceptance is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. The person who lives for success will do whatever it takes to be successful. The person who lives for their own image will do whatever it takes to turn the eyeballs of others. You are controlled by the Lord of your life. And you know the next question. Who is your Lord? That's the fundamental question regarding discipleship. When you get to the bottom of it, I think that's it. That's the fundamental question regarding discipleship because it's the fundamental question concerning your worship. Discipleship is the process of surrendering more and more of your life over to the Lordship of Jesus. This is worship. Jesus is the only one worthy of your deepest desires, your worship. He is the only sovereign Lord of the universe. Is He the sovereign Lord of your life? Paul said we present our bodies, our lives as a living sacrifice to God, which is our worship. So our our lives as disciples are to be living sacrifices to God. So as Christians, every area of our life is under this umbrella of worship. Because every area of your life is under God's lordship. Singleness, marriage, school, parenting, career, retirement, finances, and future are all under the banner of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, they're all a worship question. Issues in our marriage come down to a worship question. What's in your heart? Issues in our singleness and our struggle are a worship question. What is in my heart? Why am I seeking the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing, responding the wrong way? I'm driven by the wrong thing. Your time, talents, and your treasure are all worship issue. A devoted worshiper is a life fully submitted 
to the Lordship of Christ. Look, I want to, in closing, I just want to come back to that question regarding what comes to your mind when you think of worship. And I hope at least today you can walk away with, yes, there are, we should think about activity when we think about worship. But I want you to leave today thinking about worship as your identity. God made you a worshiper. He made us to worship and enjoy Him. Therefore, when we don't do that, we're worshiping an idol. Worship is inevitable. It's not a question of do we worship, but what do we worship? Or really, who are we worshiping? It's a question of is Christ the greatest treasure in your life? Is He the greatest treasure in my life? Is He the, the one we understand to be of most value? And that's the heart of discipleship. You want to follow Jesus? You want to lay down? We, we, we read those passages, right, where Jesus says, come follow me, take up your cross and follow me, lay down your life, and we just spit those out as Christians. Listen to what He's saying. He better be worth it. Somebody else comes up to me and says, lay down your life and follow me and you do it. You're going to say, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? It's because he's the Lord Jesus. He's the greatest treasure. He's the end of all of our desires. He's the fullness of all our satisfaction. To follow Jesus, we must worship him. To become like him be transformed into His image. We must value Him and treasure Him above all else. And this begins with our acceptance of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. And then we grow in our knowledge of God through the Word as we submit our lives to His Lordship. And this transforms us. It transforms us into Christ, into the One our heart desires and longs for. A devoted worshiper is a life lived in response to the gospel. Who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. Devoted worshippers, spirit-led, word-centered. I said this before, you'll never enter the kingdom without thinking. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. You don't close your eyes and jump off a cliff. I don't care how many times you hear that. You think, you must think to enter the kingdom. But let me say it to you even again in a different way. While you must think to enter the kingdom, you will never think your way into the kingdom. You must submit to the Lordship of Christ in spirit and in truth. It requires your heart. It requires the truth of God's word. You know who He is, but then it requires your submission of your will to Him. The devoted worshiper understands all of life to be under the banner of the Lordship of Christ. We understand nothing of our life is to be outside of the realm of worship. No area of life is outside of worship because worship is the full life response to who God is and what He has done for us in Christ. I want to end maybe a bit differently this morning and I'm going to end in prayer, but after I pray, 
the worship team can come up. But I just want to pause maybe and maybe give us a, a 45 second to a minute time of reflection this morning. And I don't know, well, for you, but you know, these are big questions that I threw out today, tough questions. Um, what do I ultimately want? That's a big question. What do I ultimately desire most? What is it that ultimately guides my thoughts, informs my decision making, and shapes my heart? Who or what honestly is the Lord of my life? Those are big questions. I want to give you time to reflect upon those. Be honest about those. And be able to respond the way the Lord calls you. If we're honest, we we need to repent. Forgive us, Lord, for making lesser things the Lord of our life. Restore us again, Lord, by the power of the gospel as we know he will do. He's faithful to do. And cause us again to see the treasure and the, the richness of who God is in the gospel. That's where we find the riches. Let me pray and then we'll pause for a minute and reflect before we sing. Lord, we, we sang the, the, the lyrics. Um, Lord, I, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You are my one defense. You are my righteousness. Oh God, we need you. But every statement there, every word there is very important. Lord, we we need you. Lord, I, I pray this morning... To begin with, for anyone in this room who does not know you, who's wrestling with the question of Christ, Lord, that you would not allow them to run from probing questions that's opening their heart. That you would give them eyes to see and a heart that would submit this morning. Lord, you are the sovereign Lord. Lord, I pray we would see the riches of who you are and the beauty of what it means to to live under your rule and reign, to be a part of your kingdom. So Lord, I pray for anyone who does not know you this morning, that you would cause them to see their sin, to repent of their sin, cry out for their need to you, Cling upon the riches of your Son, His life, His death, His resurrection for their sin, and to confess you this morning. To believe in their heart, as the Bible says, which leads to a confession of our lips. Lord, for us this morning as believers, as the church here, the hill, Lord, help us, make us a people who are devoted worshipers. Lord, that people would see they value Jesus the most. They want Him. He's the most important thing to them. I see it in the way they, the time that they spend together. I see it in the way that they interact, the way they work, the way they, their marriages, their parenting. 
I see it in all that they do. It's centered around Him. Lord, let that be true of us. Lord, forgive us, Lord. Forgive me. For far too often, wanting You to be Lord of some areas of my life, but not others. We want to submit to You this morning. So, Lord, by Your grace, through Your Spirit, through my brothers and sisters' heart, reveal the intimate, particular ways that they need to respond to you this morning and help us to respond in the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.